The little letter to Philemon. I think it's the third time that's been said this morning. It is the third time it's been said by me. I think it's also the third time it's been said in this service. This letter, which is approximately 94% of the way to the back of the Bible, a little helpful tip for you, is nestled in between Titus and Hebrews. This letter does not speak of the ministry, death, or resurrection of Jesus. This, for the Apostle Paul, seems quite out of character. Paul, having made such statements as, Far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the Galatians. And, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, to the church in Corinth. One would expect such a powerfully transformed and commissioned individual as Paul to be hardly capable of not geeking out on Jesus. Yet, Philemon's letter mentions Jesus only passively. A prisoner for Jesus. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul, in writing to Philemon, takes no time explaining the work of Christ because his goal is instead to urge Philemon, who's already a follower, to instead let Christ work through him in the midst of a particularly challenging circumstance. Now, from this letter, you can piece together a fair idea without claiming certainty of what has gone on between the three central characters of the letter. Philemon, an inhabitant of Colossae, was at some point led to Christian faith by Paul, likely at Ephesus, where Paul ministered for three years in that general area. Returning home and taking part in the building of the Colossian church, Philemon apparently became host to its meetings. This would be natural, since Philemon was at least moderately well off. Owning slaves was usually the province of wealthy landowners. So the church would have had a place to meet in his home. One of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, seems to have run away, quite possibly having stolen his master's property in the process. Escaping to Rome, Onesimus found his way, intentionally or otherwise, to Paul. Paul being Paul, the gospel was shared. Onesimus received Christ, and in the process made himself quite useful to Paul's ministry. But now, Paul is faced with two of his spiritual sons, two brothers in Christ, with a rather serious and consequential dispute between them. I want to bring forth three things from Philemon today. First, I want to examine what each of the three main subjects of Philemon is dealing with, both in terms of their circumstances and in terms of the temptations they face to deviate from their mutually professed faith. Second, I want to go through in brief Paul's appeal to Philemon. And finally, I want us to look at the implications of this short letter, specifically what it says about Christian relationships. God, speak your words this morning. My preaching is in vain without your spirit to guide and to open our ears to your message. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go any further in examining the text, I think it's worth us pulling back for a moment and thinking of how already this letter relates to us. 
It's very easy to read scripture and to unconsciously separate ourselves from the text. Some, in some ways, that's not unjust. None of us are in chains for Christ. None of us are runaway slaves. And as far as I know, none of us are wealthy landowners in modern-day Turkey. If I'm wrong, see me after church. I'd love to hear all about it. But we can all relate to the main problem that Philemon addresses, a dispute between believers. I hope it's not so, but I fear that all of us here have seen conflicts between Christians that are as petty, as ugly, or as damaging as any dispute non-believers can and have engaged in. Fights between spouses, disagreements in a church, doctrinal differences, manipulative relationships, abusive power dynamics, lawsuits, maybe something even more relatable, a thoughtless statement by another that you've taken to heart and are holding on to, a difference in viewpoints that you just can't get past, the knowledge that you should have invested the time and the effort to speak to a person or to a situation, and you didn't. There's a major problem in human relationships. We're just not that great at loving each other. In John 15, Jesus commanded his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Continuing, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's probable that this second statement was chiefly a reference to his own imminent death, but Jesus plainly expects it to be, at least in spirit, if not literally, the model for his followers. All too often, however, we lay down our lives for each other only to snatch them back up, depending on circumstance. This is the temptation that faces all three of the primary characters in the letter to Philemon. Take Onesimus. We don't know the exact nature of this man's slavery or how he was treated. He may have willingly sold himself into service to pay a debt or been made a slave against his will. Whether he was treated well or not in Philemon's household prior to his escape is unclear. But Paul's writing makes it clear that at least in the legal sense, Onesimus has wronged Philemon. Not getting too distracted by the moral implications of slavery in today's emotionally charged society, we can be confident of two things. One, in order for Onesimus and Philemon to be reconciled, Onesimus must deal with the consequences of his actions. And two, Paul's emphasis is much more concerned with the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus being repaired than with some legal requirement of justice being met. So what then is Onesimus's temptation? To not return to his master, to try and make a new life for himself and avoid submitting to what he knows now through the presence of the Holy Spirit in his new life to be right. Whatever we believe about the morality of the system in which it has taken place, Onesimus has wronged another. And worse, he's wronged a brother in Christ. Worse not because the sin is worse, but because the consequence is worse. Conflict between Christian brothers and sisters stains the testimony of witnesses to Christ. 
What of Philemon? Though cast somewhat clearly as the wronged party, we see that Paul does not write for Philemon a list of things he has instructed Onesimus to do in begging for forgiveness. Rather, Paul's appeal is to the wronged party, that on the basis of love, Philemon would see the value of this reconciliation and avoid the temptation to hold on to his rights. Just as Onesimus must submit in returning to Philemon, Philemon will need to surrender his right to legal justice in order to bring back into his household and show love to the runaway. And this is not necessarily a small order. Apart from Philemon's pride, which we all know is big enough to hinder any good work, in any of us, his forgiveness of Onesimus could well impact his reputation, even damage him in some ways, socially, culturally. Someone who just lets a runaway slave get away with things like that isn't very respected. Finn knows. But as we will see shortly, Paul is making Philemon's choice very plain. How he treats Onesimus is, in essence, a proof of his faith and a reflection of his regard for Paul. Now, Paul's temptation is perhaps the one we today are most prone to be drawn toward, the temptation to not get involved. Conflict is messy. Emotions tend to disrupt clear thinking and to ignore sound advice, which doesn't make Paul's place in the middle all that enviable. And certainly Paul's prison ministry to the numerous churches he has planted can't be put on hold to deal with these two troubled brothers. Or can it? Paul, in writing to Philemon, not a letter of theological exposition or doctrinal exhortation, but a letter urging the resolution of a specific conflict, makes it plain that not only is his ministry about preaching, but about truly making disciples, those who learn from and follow Christ. Far from lacking the gospel, the letter to Philemon is infused with it, perhaps more intrinsically than any other book in the New Testament. Paul doesn't preach the gospel. He assumes its power in and influence over Philemon and Onesimus, and he lives it out himself. In fact, without the gospel, this letter doesn't even make any sense. Paul's appeal would be weak, if not ludicrous. Let's examine that appeal now. First, let's focus in on how Paul addresses himself and his fellow believers. Paul is a prisoner for Christ Jesus, in verse 1, and Timothy, our brother. Already, the language is that of the gospel believer and the close fellowship of the saints. Philemon is our beloved fellow worker, close in his purpose, his person, and united in his purpose to Paul and Paul's group of ministers. Aphia, in verse 2, is our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Remember, it's actually fairly unlikely that Paul has ever visited Colossae. And he may not even have met some of those he addresses by name, but still, we see terms of closeness and unity. Later on in verses 7 and 20, Philemon is brother. And in verse 17, Paul grounds Philemon's favorable response to his appeal on, if you consider me your partner. For anyone to argue that it is not Paul's place to, enter, to <clears throat> interfere, the apostle makes it plain 
that his life and ministry could not be any more entwined with his addressees. I repeat, the foundation upon which all of this is built is the gospel. See how Paul greets his readers as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You can always count on Paul's greetings to say something meaningful about the intent of his letters or the framework within which he makes his arguments. Paul, in fact, repeats this description of himself in verse 9 and references it in verse 13, both as not-so-subtle, subtle reinforcement of his plea. Looking further, Paul gives thanks to God in verse 5, because I hear of your love and the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul's prayer in verse 6 is, for the sake of Christ. And then, of course, we find one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ, with a bit of variation in verses 8, 16, 20, and 23. It's not talked about explicitly, but the gospel wells up in Philemon like water from a spring, saturating the language and carving out the course of Paul's appeal like a stream bed. Now, let's dig into what Paul's appeal to Philemon actually consists of and hang on, because there's quite a bit that we're going to fly through in short order. Stated plainly in verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. In verse 17, Paul asks that Philemon receive Onesimus. It's interesting that Paul is to some extent vague in what that reception would look like. But remembering all these terms of close relationship and partnership we've looked at, a fairly clear picture emerges. Paul wants Philemon to treat Onesimus like a beloved brother and fellow worker for the gospel. In verse 7, Paul writes, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Then he calls Onesimus my child in verse 10 and my very heart in verse 12. Using this praise almost as an ultimatum, Paul then turns around in verse 20 and flat out tells Philemon, refresh my heart in Christ. And who did Paul previously say was his heart? Onesimus. To lay on a greater weight still, Paul instructs Philemon to charge to his own account any wrong or debt that Onesimus owes. And not to say Paul wasn't sincere in giving this instruction, but I find it hardly likely that Philemon would actually demand such a restitution from Paul, especially with Paul's declaration in verse 19. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your very self. Though refraining from asserting his influence, Paul doesn't seem to have any problem with alluding to it quite plainly. Then Paul begins closing out his appeal in ver by saying in verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing you will do even more than I say. That is quite a weight of expectation. And finally, in verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Wow. That is quite a hefty line of argument. It's quite a strong appeal. I could command it, but I'd rather appeal to your love for Christ and his saints. Treat Onesimus like he was me. Charge to me what you might charge to Onesimus. Remember, you owe me yourself. 
I am confident you will do more than I ask. Oh, and I'm hoping to come by soon. Not necessarily to see how you've responded, but, you know, to see how you've responded. <laughs> All this to Philemon in a letter plainly meant to be read to the entire church, of which, Ones of which Philemon seemingly is a leader. Philemon's changed life from a wealthy man concerned with building an earthly kingdom to a servant of Christ concerned with the kingdom of God is pretty plainly being put to the test. He has legal rights concerning the treatment of a runaway slave, but he also has spiritual responsibilities both to Paul and to Onesimus as his spiritual brothers, and much more to the Lord, whose bond slave Philemon now was. Once more, the gospel and the change it produces is the reason for this letter, and it is the foundation for Paul's primary argument. It is also where we begin to examine the implications of the letter to Philemon. If Paul and Philemon and Onesimus are all in Christ, if their unholiness has been traded for his righteousness and their lives have been given over to his lordship, their human differences overshadowed by their unity in service to God, then how they act in relation to each other must have its source in that transformational work. For each of the three, the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17 is at work in this dispute. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For those in Christ, a change in behavior amidst conflict from the norms of the world, the worldly way, is required. Philemon's change is in question, at least in terms of his surrendering his will in this instance. Paul, though he could command Philemon's response, instead appeals to him for love's sake, verse 9. Even so, his appeal is made in such terms as to imply, if you have anything to do with me, with the ministry of the gospel, with Christ himself, then you know what to do. I don't believe that Paul was simply being manipulative in verse 21. I think he truly was confident that Philemon would act in love. But we today simply don't know how Philemon responded. What Paul plainly implies, though, is how he should have responded. Onesimus's change is displayed powerfully in this letter. We see from verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And Paul states in verse 16 that in receiving Onesimus back, Philemon might have him back no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. This is part of the appeal to Philemon, but the implication is that Onesimus will also act in accordance with the change in relationship, not merely as a servant, but as family loving his brother in Christ, even if he goes back to serving his brother in Christ as a slave. The fact that Onesimus even returns to Colossae gives proof of his change, and Paul gives extra weight to it with his testimony. 
Paul's change is told plainly and in detail in the book of Acts. But here we see it in somewhat dramatic and very personal terms. How much easier to keep Onesimus with him in Rome and let this disagreement blow over. It likely would have been a simple matter to keep Philemon in the dark as to the presence of Onesimus among Paul's fellowship. He didn't even have Facebook back then. Paul, beyond this, states plainly that his desire is to keep Onesimus with him because Onesimus has been such a help. But Paul's love for the gospel and his passion for reconciliation drives him in this situation and in his writing, as it does in all of his letters. I read to you 2 Corinthians 5.17 before, but let's look at the broader passage now, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is no longer living for himself. Nor does he regard his brothers according to the flesh, which might view them as frustrating distractions from an important ministry. And Paul certainly does not regard Christ according to the flesh, as he once did, seeking fervently how he might oppose those who were witnesses to Jesus' life and power. Having met Christ, through a terrifying and glorious encounter, Paul has been made anew. And not simply to look back and regret what he was, but to look forward and accept a new calling. A calling as one reconciled to God to be also a minister of reconciliation. This is the why of the letter to Philemon. Paul can't not write this letter and send it with Onesimus back to Philemon. If Christ has worked so powerfully to reconcile such a hateful and depraved man as Saul of Tarsus to God, giving him a new name and a world-changing ministry, Paul must also be diligent in reconciling two brothers in Christ to each other. And so must we do likewise. To anyone who might be tempted to think that your surrender to Christ is any less terrifying and miraculous than Saul's, I assure you it is not. The sentence of death and damnation upon your soul 
was every bit as real and your sins every bit as contemptible as Saul's. And praise be to God. Your redemption in Christ Jesus is every bit as miraculous and beautiful and effective for the furtherance of God's kingdom as that of the Apostle Paul. We have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We must be reconciling those we call brothers and sisters in Christ, both to God and to each other. I'm thankful to be part of the counseling cohort of United Baptist Church and for the focus we've had for a long time as a body whole of ministering to one another and to those around us. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need to be ready to take part in directing our brothers and sisters to God's word and to be ready to speak what the Holy Spirit would say to them even as we are open to hear what he has to say to us. The witness of Paul as a minister of reconciliation among the body is participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is how we display that participation. Last week, Pastor Scott was talking about elders, and he quoted the widely used and accurate statement, elders, pastors, should smell like sheep. They are shepherds. They should smell like sheep. Pastor and author Mark Dever made a similar statement in referencing Paul's work of reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. Peacemakers smell like Christ. Onesimus is also witness to the change Christ brings. The name Onesimus means useful. And Paul wrote, Formerly, he was useless to you. Useful was once useless. But now, useful is indeed useful. And in verse 20, when Paul writes, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. The root word for benefit is the same as that used above for useful. So, Paul to Philemon. Useful was once useless to you. Now, he is truly useful, both spiritually and physically. Will you likewise be useful, your true self, in Christ, by refreshing Onesimus, my heart, in Christ? If you haven't experienced that change in your life, in your attitude toward God and others, in your understanding of who you are meant to be, look to Onesimus. He is willing to be a slave again to man in order that he might show faithfulness to God. The cross of Christ is not an invitation to ease and self-gratification, rather quite the opposite, but its glory is such that any hardship or humiliation is regarded as worthy service to the one who saved us from eternal separation from God. Onesimus is willing to face punishment so that as much as it depends on him, he might make peace with Philemon. And he goes to make peace with Philemon because God has made peace with Onesimus. And finally, Philemon. Philemon is witness to the challenge we all face, to the questions we must be regularly asking ourselves. Am I regarding the reconciling work of Christ? Am I viewing others according to the flesh? 
If we are in Christ, then everything we are according to the flesh is overshadowed. All our earthly ties take second place. More important than our position is our connection in Christ. More important than the wrongs we have done or the wrong done to us is our duty to each other in Christ. More important than fighting for our rights or avoiding even unjust punishment is displaying Christ. We'll end this morning looking at verse 6. Likely the most challenging verse in terms of interpretation, but also perhaps the most important in terms of meaning. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us, for the sake of Christ. This verse has often been picked out from the rest of the letter and used as an encouragement for evangelism, which doesn't necessarily translate to an anti-biblical message. But the word for sharing, the sharing of your faith, is koinonia, fellowship, partnership, communion, Paul uses the same root word in 17 to say, if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus. Paul's prayer is that as Philemon lives out and experiences the fellowship of the faith, in general as he works to refresh the hearts of those around him and provide a meeting place and leadership for his church, but also specifically as he recognizes the value of and enters joyfully into fellowship with Onesimus, that he would see how good it is to be in Christ, individually and together. All this for the sake of Christ, that his name might be glorified in the church and witnessed by those around who see such a display of radical humility, grace, and love. May that be our prayer for each other as well. Even as Christ commanded in John, that we would love each other as God has loved us, so that all people will know that we are Christ's disciples because we have love for one another. Lord, as we take your message of love and reconciliation from this place, may you work in us, convicting, challenging, and encouraging. Have your way in us, Lord. Amen.